Welcome to another episode of the Power Connector Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Dickow, where I sit and have what I call curiosity conversations, learning a little bit about my guests, trying to understand how they built their business, how they navigated the challenges of the day in their everyday career to be the CEO or in the position that they're in today. And joining me today is someone that I respect in business, Adam Lutz, who's the CEO and managing principal of Q10 Lutz Financial and Lutz Real Estate Investments. Welcome to the show, Adam. It's good to see you. Oh, thanks for having me. So I start this as a curiosity conversation because I'm just genuinely interested in what other people do and what people have built and understanding what they've done over the course of their career. So I I like to start all of my conversations asking what I think is the most important question, which is what's new and exciting for you? Uh, Well, you know, commercial real estate is going through a transition right now. We're we're still in the early stages of that. Um, You know, the last few years, especially from 2020 through, um, I would say, last summer of 22, was just a boom time for real estate. Um, apartments, I wouldn't say that for office buildings, but industrial has been hot and shopping centers have been leasing up, not malls, but, you know, strip centers um, and financing was really aggressive. The interest rates were really low. And um, if you were smart and able to, you know, put long-term debt on your properties at uh, 3%, you're you're feeling pretty good right now. And um, so, you know, we, at Q10 Lutz, we're a mortgage banking firm and uh, advise our clients. Um, and we were begging a lot of our uh, clients to put this long-term debt on with their life companies. Um, you, at the time, you might have some prepayment issues because your debt was 45 or 6%. And to get out of that, you had to pay a prepayment penalty. The smart ones paid it, but locked in long-term debt. And the ones that were short-sighted waited too long. And uh, interest rates rose at a pace we've never seen before. And um, it'll be really interesting over the next uh, 18 months what develops here. Um, it, obviously, office is uh, its own component that would require its own podcast. But there's a lot of floating rate debt out there uh, where rates went, you know, they're paying 200 over LIBOR, which was nothing. And now, you know, it's at 4 or 5% plus 200. So they're paying 7 8%. And it's causing, and you're starting to see some people go to their lenders and, you know, say, hey, how are we going to handle this? There was, um, and we placed a lot of loans with uh, what's called CLOs or debt funds, particularly on apartment loans over the last uh, three years. And those groups were pricing, let's say, 350 to 400 over LIBOR or SOFR, which is now the, the metric. And so when we started that, SOFR was at 10 basis points. And now, again, it's up to 5%. So uh, when you put those loans on, uh, you had to buy a cap, an interest rate cap. And they were cheap. It was like no big deal. Uh, Well, with the rise, you have a lot of those interest rate caps expiring. Often there were two-year terms. Some were three-year terms, depending on pricing. And now that it's so far, you know, above the cap, and you're going to have to uh, pay the cap, Again, um, at this low level, it's going to be really expensive, and there's going to be some decisions to be made, specifically in the in the apartment world. I would say. Mm. So, so a lot of people are looking to either dispose of assets that they have or scrapping deals entirely. 
Yeah, I, th- I think there'll be like a need for preferred equity to come in and uh, recapitalize the deal. In some cases, put a new loan on it. Um, you know, there'll be some sales because, you know, in a lot of cases, the rents have gone up. It's just they can't afford the debt when the uh, caps expire. So you, you've been a, a mortgage banking professional your entire life. You've always looked at numbers, right? This is <laughs> well, actually, actually, I started as a well, actually I started as a, a kid following my dad around the properties. Um, my father, Eric Yellutz, uh, he worked for Showstack in the '70s with a great group of people there, and went on his own and uh, had a portfolio here of uh, in Birmingham, Bloomfield, and Ann Arbor. So my Saturdays, when I wasn't playing sports, were following him around, uh, particularly the apartment complexes. And he owned a few hotels, and watching him nitpick uh, the physical condition of these, and uh, having nervous property managers follow around and writing down sheets of paper, and you know, pointing out, you know, he always liked to value add. He was really into marketing. Uh, he was kind of ahead of the curve at that time, and so that's how I was my first introduction to real estate. So your father took you around. Were you wearing hard hats or just kind of <laughs> following him around? And no, I was just following him around. Yeah, yeah. and so he would, uh, you know, point out to the property managers, "Let's fix this. Let's address that." Mm-hmm. Opening kitchen cabinets. I mean, give me an idea for what, what yeah, kind no, of att- he, he attention was big in to landscaping. detail. A lot of it was landscaping to him mm-hmm. and exterior appeal. I would say. Yeah, that's an important part, right? It's mm-hmm. the first thing that people see is is the how does the property look? Could mm-hmm. I live here? Yep. And so you got your experience on Saturday mornings walking with dad. And then at what point did you say, this is something that is interesting to me? Well, you know, in the early mid eighties of going back, um, there weren't as many real estate professionals. Um, you know, my friends, dads, there, there wasn't one, you know, I, I knew the group, you know, I could name them today, the Curlicks and Partridges and show stacks, you know, but it was a small handful of, Local developers have been doing it, and um, it was a different era. Um, and so I was, it was appealing to me. My dad, you know, did really well in the mid-'80s, um, bought a lot of great properties, built some properties in Birmingham, um, renovated the train station and brought in uh, Norm's Eaton Street Station at that time. He did 220 renovation of that building. Behind that's Brown Street Center. He, uh, he built that building. Um, he assembled the land where the Townsend is, and his, uh, his partner ended up developing that, um, Tony Brown. And he owned a lot of buildings in Birmingham that you, you walk by every day. And so uh, he branched into Ann Arbor way before anyone else really did. Um, so he, he, he had some notoriety then, which was kind of exciting. Uh, personally, I'm not one that thrives in the limelight. Uh, he, he enjoyed it at that time. Um, so it was exciting and yeah, it was something that I thought I would definitely want to get into. I worked as a, in high school, I worked at his office. I got, you know, I changed after work, after school into a suit and tie and helped around the office. I'm not sure how helpful I was, but I tried and, um, it was exciting. And, um, um, you know, unfortunately he got invested into hotels and, um, he got involved with the savings and loan bank and you're a little young for that era, but this is like 1989, 1990. And they, uh, they came after him for everything he had, um, when the RTC stepped in 
And uh, it was devastating to him and my family. And so I tried to escape. <laughs> I tried to think of what else I wanted to do since this was my mindset my whole life. And um, I ended up following some uh, guys are a few years older than me, uh, Matt Curlick and Ross Partridge. Into, they went to NYU's kind of new and up-and-coming real estate um, school and a master's. And so th that, that appealed to me was to move to New York and, and you know, try to learn more from the master's program and, and see where that, where that took me. Yeah, so it was a devastating blow to the family in the late 80s, the yes. savings and loan yes. scandal. Uh, if I remember that correctly, right? It was, yeah, you know, it's tough because, you know, my dad was like, he was a marketing guy. He was the first guy really going radio for advertising his properties. He had big newspaper ads. When he uh, when Brown Street Center, which is the office building behind 220, was built, he had a huge party. You know, he he really knew how to market and sell the real estate, and whether it was an office building or apartment buildings, and, you know, he had a knack to him. And then to see him... Um, suffer so badly was, you know, gut-wrenching. And he, there were some negative articles about him in the paper, and it, w it was tough for him, especially, obviously, and tough to be his son, watching him go through it, and to know that times got really tough. So, yeah, it was, it was a pretty uh, important part of my life. So then you get a, a master's degree for out in NYU, cultivating relationships, uh, some connection here to Metro Detroit with, you mentioned the Kerlick family uh, in, in Ross Partridge, who I know in the manufacturing housing business. Yeah. Um, and then you decide in New York, I'm going to come back and, and dive into the business or give me an idea. No, for I, I love New York. I was thriving. I, I thought that I was an insomniac when I was younger, but realized I was just a New Yorker mm -hmm. and uh, I love the lifestyle. And um, I was fortunate because uh, the first job I had was with some of the original Wall Street firms that were getting into commercial real estate finance. The timing was just great for me. And um, I worked for probably the most um, uh, highly well-known early, mid-90s uh, Wall Street firm, Nomura. And Nomura was known because it had a big um, leader that kind of uh, set the tone for Wall Street. His name is Ethan Penner, and he's, he's still around today. But he created an exciting workplace, dynamic workplace where young people, you know, I was probably the youngest at 22 or 3, but um, everyone's in their 20s and everyone's working really hard and going for it and traveling to see properties and we're building it from scratch. And um, that was new to real estate finance because prior to that, it was a pretty stodgy existence. It was a couple of correspondents that had life companies and there was a lot fewer lenders involved, and it was kind of a slow-moving uh, process. And this just changed the whole game for real estate. And they started to make loans on some properties that were, were tougher at the time to make, whether it was hotels or properties in the South that were, had gone through some of the recessions of the early 90s, whether it was uh, manufactured housing, as you mentioned earlier. I mean, that was a huge source of capital uh, in the early to mid-90s for that for that group. Um, so it was a really exciting time to work there. At what point do you decide to come back to Michigan and start a new chapter here and work back with your father? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that was, I was there for about six years working um, and to not have a family in New York city was, it grew tiresome. 
Um, and uh, I would say for the last year and a half I worked there, every phone call my father was like, I really think you should come back. I think it's time. Things are you know turning around. He had gotten into some other ancillary businesses besides just development. He started a mortgage banking business. He was doing office and retail leasing. And, and he's like, I really could use you. And it, the timing wasn't right for me to, to do that. But um, as I got more and more burnt out of working crazy hours and going out at night, and I had met my uh, future wife, um, eventually he caught me at the, at the right time. And um, I decided, I thought I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So um, I went for it and moved back home. And I, and I was fortunate to move back uh, to a city where I had like a really core group of friends that all moved back here as well. So, you know, there's some, there's some gaps in some age groups, particularly those a little bit younger than me who never came back. I was just fortunate that some of my best friends all, you know, relocated here. So there was a comfort zone when I moved back here. Yeah, I think my generation is infamous for, you know, getting educated in Michigan, going to state, and then moving to Chicago, Miami, or New York, very few have come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, very few come back right, or want to, but uh, it's nice to see that your generation kind of set the stage and then took this commercial real estate and mortgage industry to, to the next level on the commercial side. So you, you come back to, you want to say like mid-90s? Uh, it was 99. 99. Okay, so there 99. Was, there was a big uh, event called Long-Term Capital, which was a big, just blew out the, the, the debt industry for a while. And after, and after that, it was, I was like, oh, it's time to move. So, so you, you are an entrepreneur, in my opinion, because you do a lot of things. Entrepreneurs suffer from, uh, you know, they're just interested in so many different areas in business. So you, you're the CEO of your company, managing partner, you're an investor, you're a leader, you're a CFO, you're a CEO. You do a lot. You wear a lot of hats within the company. When you came back in 1999-ish and you had your first opportunity, your first big break, what was that? Well, there's really a few things that went on there. So um, the first thing was I I wanted to buy properties. That was one of the reasons my dad came back. And we had been doing mortgage banking. And as I said, the the pool of ownership was a lot shallower than it is today. And so I went to try to make an offer to buy a piece of real estate. And a broker in my office brought it in from another buyer. And it happened again. And I backed away from it. And, um, happened again. And so my background in New York was traveling to different cities around the country. I, for a while I was stationed in San Francisco and handled the West coast and, you know, enjoyed learning new markets that I thought were exciting. And so, um, you know, I started to look out of state, um, not to compete with our own clients locally, some firms locally here that do that. Uh, I don't think it's right really, you know, to, to compete with your own clients. So, um, so my, my first deal that I bought uh, actually came over on a fax, and it was in Philadelphia, uh, suburban Philadelphia, Westchester, Pennsylvania, and it was a shopping center. And that's where my uh, in-laws are from. That's where my wife grew up. So I sent over my father-in-law to drive out to Westchester, and he drove it, and, you know, he took some pictures, whatever, and sent it, you know, via mail, the pictures, and... Anyway, it just, it just was fortuitous because uh, we had a relationship with the original developer there. He'd come to Detroit to open some stores, and um, he actually had developed the center. He's like, you should buy it. And so um, we ended up buying that 
shopping center. Um, and it was, it turned out to be a home run. We, 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 it took many years, but we took the local grocer down. We brought in a big giant supermarket and it was a, it was a big success. So that helped call, uh, catapult my investments out of state. Uh, from the mortgage banking side, what really changed the game for us was when we joined, we were Lutz Capital and we were doing deals with friends of mine that I had from New York, you know, but if we heard, I'm going to make up a name, Morgan Stanley was doing a lot of X, Y, and Z, I'd have to call up, I didn't know them, and say, oh, I'm Adam Lutz, Lutz Capital, Detroit. Like, eh, not that interested. You know, one-off shop from Detroit, how much business are we going to do? You know, they had big volume thresholds they got to hit. So we joined in 2003 with a uh, group that had formed, um, which was about 15 offices, individual owners of their offices, but came together almost like a cooperative to share resources. And, and that was a game changer for us, not only for our clients, because we got exposure to so many more lenders because we were ICAP. We weren't just Lutz Capital and we would get referrals on this internet and everyone would talk to each other. And it also uh, allowed us to bring on some higher quality mortgage bankers and analysts because there was a more sophisticated level to it. We were doing more volume and it kind of uh, uh, launched that business as well. And that was you cultivating relationships with these family offices and high, high net worth folks or? The ICAP group, they were offices like ours. Uh, some of them had been Prudential mortgage correspondents for 20, 30 years. And Prudential pulled that correspondency and became a direct lender. So they were like left scrambling because that was like a, the meat and potatoes of their businesses. So the, a bunch of them came together and say, hey, we're all separate. But let's you know work together with marketing and advertising and have meetings at the mortgage banking convention. Um, so and we had a president, um, and it kind of launched our servicing post closing servicing department. So that's kind of how it operated. Tell me a little bit about how you manage personalities with a you know group of folks sophisticated that are all coming together, investing dollars. And the, the personality conflicts are a real thing, especially in the investor um, investor pool, right? Egos uh, are always involved, and you seem to have a way for you know getting the right people to the right table for deals. How how do you manage relationships? I would say I've just you know I've learned a lot from others of how they handle situations and try to think of those moments in the past when things have arisen that don't always go your way and how you handle it. Um, but, you know, I've learned just innately from spending so much time with my father, a lot of, um, wisdom and personality. And, uh, you know, I've tried to apply that, uh, you know, as I've moved forward, I'm not a hands-on micromanager at all. Um, I'm much more the opposite. I'd rather have casual one-on-one conversations about, let's say the brokers in my office, their deals or what's going on. And, you know, I'm not one that sets like meetings and, you know, hits, 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 um, I'd rather do it casually. And so I try to have a casual nature, but when I speak, um, I believe that it comes across that I have the wisdom, experience, and knowledge to, to assist in whatever, you know, we're discussing. Um, through my real estate ownership side, it's, it's helped my mortgage banking side and my clients and the firm's clients because I've owned office buildings, shopping centers, um, and flex business parks. And, um, in, uh, 2009, I had 
fortunately sold some of those things around the country, but whatever I was left with, you know, got hit really hard. So I've, I've, I've suffered from those, uh, the downturns, uh, which is painful, uh, but it, you learn quite a bit and how to rebuild from there. And so um, I think there's a balance between knowledge, experience, patience with the people you're talking to, and humor. I'm, I'm tend to be lighthearted. Uh, you know, I try to you know be engaging and to whoever I'm talking to. You know, what is their personality like, and and adapt to you know that person. So, but I think humor is. And you know, I'm not a very ag- aggressive person. I prefer to be, you know, quiet confidence. I like that. Tell me about the the biggest lesson you learned in rebuilding after 2009. So you you had the vantage point of seeing what happened to your father in 89. Uh, you, you fast forward, you know, 20 some years later, and tell me what was the biggest lesson for you? The biggest lesson was how quickly it can turn. I mean, it was like we had really successful business parks down in Tampa and Atlanta and Raleigh, great markets. They were still up and coming at the time. We were probably ahead of the curve. And I mean, we went from 95% occupancy to 60s in like a minute. Just companies went out of business. Uh, it's probably more true because they were flex business parks. There wasn't like a lot of credit per se, but a lot of bigger users. Uh, but, you know, in particular in Tampa, the we had like the landscaping firms or the insurance brokers are all tied to residential. And, you know, boom, they were all closed their doors so fast you couldn't before you blinked. And then so, you know, and then trying to work it out and we tried to keep all the properties that we could. Um, but um, a lot of them had been done with conduit loans. So they're all different piece buyers you had to deal with, the different personalities, and some we were more successful than others. But um, you, you learn then to, to fight on two battles in defense and also try to play offense. Because um, as we were getting out of it, we had to keep going. So, you know, the acquisition team started, you know, early on trying to figure out what the next step would be and how we would get through it. So, A lot of people get uh, emotionally tied to properties, especially during times of... Uh tragedies or rate hikes and stuff like that. Um, have you found that uh, you, you've been able to separate yourself from that, that sort of emotional connection to properties? Or is it just, yeah, I think being a particular out of state landlord, I, I've never grown. Uh, I was never like that committed to any one property. You know, we'd always bought and sold some things, um, bought some stuff in Minneapolis and Philadelphia and Atlanta. And um, we bought, fixed them, dressed them up, remarketed them, and then sold them. So I have always had that kind of a transactional mentality. With people, though, you're not. It's it's opposite for people. Uh, you know, direct, direct, direct connection with others. It's not a transactional. I mean, the, the real estate side is is transactional, but the people side is very relational. And you you've developed relationships with a lot of your colleagues and people in business that have lasted 25, 30 years or more. Um, what's been some of your secret to your strategies there? Um, humor. You know, I don't know if there's a secret. I just, I, I just try to be myself. Um, and again, it's a, it's a, my, you know, I think I have a warm personality, not threatening. Um, you know, I could be stern if need be, but I, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a demanding friend or, or a demanding employer. I, I like accountability, but, um, 
you know, in our office has always been like a family atmosphere. My dad fostered that, you know, throughout his career. And uh, even people leave, they still, you know, embrace us when we see them in the streets or whatever. They all, most of the people, I think, all speak very highly of their experiences and what they learned and are appreciative. So, um, you know, in the mortgage banking, uh, until recently we had, you know, several people that have been there over 20 years. One was 25 years. Um, so I, I think people enjoy working in, in, in our office and, um, you know, we try to make it fun. Uh, for a couple of years, our, when our office was on Brown and Old Woodward, we used to have an annual Dream Cruise party because we were right in the thick of it, and that was a blast. You know, we had you know five hundred thousand people would come by for our barbecue, and I think I've been there one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was pretty fun, and I think uh, it's a, those type of things that I think are important, and you know, you know, create an environment where your staff wants to be there. If it's investors want to come or clients, it's 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 it's, a, it's warm and inviting, I think is important. So it's important for you to have a warm, inviting environment, calm demeanor. You like to leverage humor in your personality to cultivate relationships with people. Um, externally, do you take a different approach or is it kind of like everybody that comes to you gets the same Adam? I think I'm pretty consistent uh, with friendships and with work. Yeah. I don't, I try to be sincere of who I am and this is what you get either. If you don't like it, then we don't have to be friends, you know. I think most people do, um, and um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy. No, you've got to <laughs> with, repeat. My, with my you, uh, with my uh, re, you know relationships with you know whether it's work or with friendships. So yeah, you got fortunate. a great you got a great reputation with people that service you, the people that do business with you, and your partners, which is important. And they're substantial people, so you know, it, it, that doesn't happen overnight, right? It's years of consistency and years of of being who you are that makes people want to do more with you. Um, t tell me what has helped you along your career, helped you build your confidence. Uh, I'm going to say, you know, I've always had inner confidence. I've always felt like, you know, you know, obviously early on I didn't know a lot, but I learned pretty quickly and um, I was excited to learn whether it was new asset classes or new markets. And so I feel like I'm dealing from, a knowledge base that makes me very secure in what I know. I've seen, you know, I've experienced leasing. I've experienced whether it's office or retail or, you know, urban. I've done historic tax credits. I've done facade easements. I, I have a, a, a pretty deep experience base. And so I, I have a lot to offer um, clients or, you know, if, if an investor wants to invest in a deal, I think I'm very thorough and forthwith and, and I think the people that have repeatedly invested with me have known that I'm always honest, you know, and if there's an issue, which deals don't go as they, uh, as they're always on paper. So I've always been communicative, um, letting them know. And, you know, I think, you know, we've had, we have had situations in, you know, mortgage banking where things didn't go as we had expected, but, um, you know, we all hopefully pull together and, and figure out ways to get the deals closed, which is the most important, but, you know, there's some tensions that get high, especially in acquisitions when, you know, things don't pan out in due diligence. And how do you handle those situations? And, um, you know, I've been there myself, so I feel like it makes me a better um, partner and advisor as a mortgage banker in, in those circumstances. So there are opportunities as uh, on the real estate side, real estate investment side, where you take to the market 
and you raise money from friends, family, high net worth individuals, and you're the general partner and you're structuring the deal, uh, what for you is the most challenging part of that process? Finding the deals. You know, once, once I have control of a deal and it's pretty much second nature from there, um, you know, it gets hard when you transition the, the management over, et cetera. But, um, cause you always find out stuff that you didn't know just through, you know, jumping in and doing third party reports. But, um, I would say finding the deals is the toughest part. It used to be, you know, in the early two thousands, um, you know, I had started to develop a, a reputation in certain markets where I bought stuff. And, um, and at that time I had a, a very deep specific money partner who would fund all the equity. So I was speaking from strength cause I knew he would put it up if the deal made sense, but we'd be like one of three or five groups bidding on, I'll just say an office building in center city, Philadelphia or in Buckhead, Atlanta. Like it wasn't today with the internet and the blasting and the equity funds that have been raised and pension funds putting out so much money, you know, it, it was a lot easier to secure deals. You know, it's like, if you wanted the deal, you, sometimes you had a stretch or you would say you'd bow out, but it was a more of a, you know, true conversation with the broker. Um, and today it's, it's just really transactional for the most part. And it's tough. It's really hard to find deals. Um, the last few years I've taken a pause, um, and kind of stayed on the sidelines and sold, uh, you know, one of my bigger properties in Miami and have been waiting. And I think, um, uh, that time to find new deals is, is about to, to come to fruition. And I think there'll be opportunities and, uh, you know, I'm excited about that. So it's challenging to find deals because everybody has access, real-time access to the stuff, and you're competing. This is a competition pool. You mentioned earlier it was so narrow, and today everybody can become an investor or a syndicator, and so you're competing at a higher level in real time. So you almost have to, if, I, if I'm hearing you right, you almost have to cultivate relationships with people that trust you, have confidence in your work and your ability to close. Are those... Are they always coming from the banking world? Are they coming? From- no, not, not, not yet at least, but, uh, no, they're, they're, they're mostly through brokers. Um, some brokers have brought me some stuff off market. Um, uh, but it's this, at, at this point, it, you know, the brokers control what gets sold. And so either you, you focus in certain markets or whatever, you develop a relationship with certain brokers, they know you. So when you're you know really interested in a deal, they know you're real and you're going to perform. So it's building those relationships. Give me a little insight on how you build relationships with these brokers outside of, you know, don't give me any IP, but give me some ideas for what, what are some strategies that you might implement that's been really successful to you? The main point is to go to a property, whether or not you're going to buy it or not, um, and strike a personal relationship with that broker, you know, and, and maybe grab lunch after, or see if you can grab a drink with them later. Um, you have to develop a personal relationship to really stand out. Tons of people take tours, but when they see, they say, see you later, they move on. You know, I, I've really worked at the markets, you know, when I'm interested in buying it, developing a rapport with a specific broker or two or three and, and, and really kind of writing them and, you know, and their experiences. And, oh yeah. Cause when a deal comes that meets your profile, they're going to let you know, Hey, take a look at this and they're pulling for you. So you, you, you demonstrate a commitment by showing up, you take a tour of the property, but then you take it a step further, take them out to lunch or breakfast and develop a little bit more of a personal relationship. And 
you know, during the breakfast or lunch, you're not talking numbers. You're talking about the no, importance just of life family. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, no numbers at all. You just, the deal's not important at that point. It's just building a relationship. Do you have any uh, insights on what, what are some of the ideas that you might approach in a conversation? I mean, for me, yeah, I, th- I love to talk about people's family. I like to yeah. learn about their family, learn a little bit more uh, about their history, where they're from is always interesting to me. Yeah. Are there some things that you default to in a conversation that no, get you real I, comfortable? I, I kind of give what the conversation you know takes. I'm not, I don't have like a, a hit list, if you will, of, of, of subjects. I, I love to ask, you know, intriguing questions and, maybe push the envelope with a little humor and see where it goes. But I think that's what sets you apart. They remember you, they, they enjoy your company and then they want to do bills, you know, do business with you. So I like that approach. I think that that um, is a good separator, right? Most people would just be in and out, look at the numbers. Does this fit into my box? But you're willing to go the extra step to help develop a, a personal relationship. I think that's important. Um, what is outside of your father and some mm-hmm. of the relationships that you've built, who has been an important mentor to you that has helped in times of need for you? Well, early on in my first job, I had two bosses that were major characters. I was doing work at Nomura, but my firm that was like uh, subcontracted was was owned by uh, a mortgage, old school mortgage banking firm called Cooper Horowitz. And um, they kind of revolutionized mortgage banking in the 60s and 70s and when I was there, they were probably both in their, one was probably late 60s and the other one was early 70s. And, you know, I, I learned so much just from how they looked at real estate and looked at deals. You know, I would go and I was probably the first guy in the office that had like a computer that would go in and, you know, put together spreadsheets and then come in with numbers. And one of the guy, one of the owners came into me, Eric Cooper, he's like, the answer's not in the computer. That's what he kept going. The answer's not in the computer. And then I would take the numbers that I ran. It took me two hours, and I would run into Barry Horowitz's office, who was probably the biggest character in real estate finance to ever live, who would be smoking his uh, 12th cigar of the day and um, chewing on it and, like, spitting. And he's just an old school. He was immaculately dressed with a suit, just chewed cigars, talk to people like an old school broker and he would do what I, he would take numbers. He'd say, what's the rent? What's this? What's that? Boom, boom, boom. And he'd come to the same exact loan that I spent two hours going through numbers. He just had the innate ability to really break it down um, just from knowledge of, Oh, that deals in Queens. It's this rent. It's that cap rate. It's this expense. Boom. And so, you know, you learned that, Um, how to look through the weeds and not just look at the numbers per se and have an innate sense of what real estate's worth um, and what it could be worth. He was really, um, he also taught me about day drinking. He, uh, he would take the train in and and he would take the train home. So at lunchtime, if he had one drink, one martini, he would come back and he would tell you jokes or he'd get lenders on the phone and you'd be laughing. If he had two drinks, it would be, it'd go either way on you. The third drink, he would get ornery and get mad. And then it was time to stay in your office. So um, I, I went out one time with him for some martinis, and you know, I'm 22, 23 years. And I was asleep at my desk, I think, within like five minutes. So I, I learned early on not to day drink. But that teaches you things. I mean, it's a different world. I mean, he was a different, 
time, different era, but it worked for him. So the value of the day drink, yeah, one, right? One. one, one would be anything more than one is a little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah, it gets a little excessive. <laughs> it can get a little a little crazy. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned these two gentlemen. How about uh, locally? Um, how about today? So you know you're an established guy. You know you got a big company. You got a couple Q10 lots and, and lots uh, financial or real estate investments. How about today? Do you cultivate relationships with mentors that are important to you? Do you still have mentors? Yeah, I still have. Uh, you know, one of my uh, close friends and mentors, more like a brother to me, his name's Andy Milia. Um, he worked for my father uh, as his right hand man and partner from mid '80s, and then late nineties, he got into land development. Um, so he kind of pursued that, but he stayed in our office. We were partners in the land deals and the original ones with him. And, um, he has always been my go-to if I have any questions at all. He's really, um, he's very logical and breaks things down for you and, and helps you think them through. Uh, he's a wonderful, wonderful person. And I would say he's probably my most influential mentor that I've had. Mm. So you're still cultivating relationships, even at your stage. I try to, yeah. I've, you know, I've tried to uh, work hard over the last few years in particular to get back out and make a point to take people golfing, meet for a drink, meet for lunch. Um, you know, every week I, I try to set up a few different, you know, think outside the box. Um, and, you know, people generally are happy to hear from you and, and, and they, you know, they always end up, you know, you bring something up and it leads to something else that you didn't expect. And, um, so yeah, I've been really working hard at that since, you know, probably I was really busy in 21. So 22, 23, had a little more time. People love coming to our office in Birmingham, walking to the restaurants. Um, so that's something I've really worked hard on the last, you know, year and a half. Would you categorize people in, into different, uh, like, maybe somebody that's above you, somebody that could be a center of influence, and then maybe somebody that looks up to you? Do you have different categories of people that you might cultivate these kind of relationships? Yeah, with? I try I try to mix it up for yeah. sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. What have you found is the, the best piece of advice to someone that's coming up? Do the same. Reach out. You know, be aggressive. Don't be hesitant to make that call or to reach out and ask someone to get together. Um, even just stopping by their office or um, because the more people you meet, you develop a rapport with, the more things come out of it long-term. I, I would say for, for, especially for young people, and I was certainly guilty of it. I was like in a rush to, to buy deals and do this, finance this. And, and, um, a longer term perspective is, is, is really important. Um, and very few people have it, especially people in their twenties today, you know, they want instant gratification. They want it tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. So I've struggled with that. We've hired some people and I let them go pretty quickly because they just didn't want to work. You know, they just wanted to get results. They don't want to put the time in. So, you know, I quickly recognize that and, and tell them it's not a good fit. What have you found to be the most uh, challenging issue with today's corporate culture, today's talent pool that you see? It's been really hard to find those people that want to stay long-term and have that long-term perspective. We've, we've always had it in our company and there's just a lot of jumping around these days and the grass is always greener, or, you know, or they think it is. 
Um, you know, I've had people take a job, sign the offer letter, and then the two weeks later, the day before they're supposed to start, sorry, I took another job. That's happened twice to me in the last few months. It's like there's ramifications to what you do and how you act, and I don't think that um, some of the younger people grasp that. But it affects, you know, I'm a smaller business, and, you know, we, we got it all set up for you. We're ready for you as you're starting, and, you know, we've laid it out, and then not to show, it's a hole, and that means more often than not I'm <laughs> jumping in to do things that I, you know, hired someone else to hopefully help me with, so. It's a challenge, not just in your business, but in every every industry that we see, people will ghost uh, they'll come back and say, yeah, shake your hand. I'm, I'm here to work and then disappear. I think um, if we look back maybe 100 years ago, people did one thing for a long time, right? It was maybe they were a farmer. They were a tradesperson. You know, these days the technology is advancing things so very fast for people that they're, the, the younger generation, they just, they just lose interest. I, I'm not familiar with that. I mean, I understand opportunities move and you have to adapt. But at the same time, it's like you expect to see a little bit more out of the younger generation. That's something that I'd like to see a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, fortunately, I found a few really good, hardworking young people. And, you know, I'm excited to have them and teach them. And, you know, you could see they want to learn and grow and they're willing to work hard. And once you find one of those these days, you just hold on to them and, you know, cultivate that so they want to stay long term. You mentioned earlier that your father was um, cutting edge with his marketing and his approach to advertising and, and, and um, marketing the sites and, and properties. How are you leveraging some of what's available today into your practice? You know, there's chat GPT, there's artificial intelligence, there's social media. I mean, there's like a million things and ways that you can communicate with people. Have you found any of these to be real interesting and supportive to your day-to-day -day tasks? I would say it's most helpful in property management of some apartments we own and the different, um, you know, whether it's, you know, there's, there's so many different options to get in front of people. Um, I found though that, um, when we've had third parties in the past, um, they are kind of lazy and they just say, Oh, we're paying Google this or we're paying and they're paying so much more than they need to because they don't really refine the SEO or whatever else the mechanisms are to, attract eyes to the site. Um, I mean, you can't underestimate how many people look for, let's say apartments online because it's crazy, but you have to do other things. You have to get in the marketing. Uh, you know, we still go out, you know, meet with businesses and, you know, meet with hospitals and meet with the universities in the area because that it does work to still get out and meet people, which is, you know, something we always did. You know, you can't take out an ad newspaper anymore or, um, like you used to and get some, uh, some, some, uh, some good leads, but you can't just pay to play and expect you're going to be full of, you know, in, in your occupancy from the uh, mortgage banking perspective, we probably could do a better job getting out there. I know, you know, LinkedIn is a, is a major influence. I don't know how many deals people get per se from it as a mortgage banking. Um, but, um, it's definitely something we as a company need to do better. Um, and maybe part of it is because I'm so busy and I can barely keep up with my emails and now the texts and I don't know if, which I'm supposed to be looking at the, my screen, my iPad, my phone. It's just, it's mind numbing to then go on at night and look at LinkedIn. For me, it's just, I, I just, I'm, I'm done. Now I know 
when I do go on it and I see all these people on it and what they're posting, what they're doing is it's a whole community that seems really effective tool that my firm needs to do a better job of. I think everybody could, can find a, um, some, some better tools to help their business advantage what they're working on. I don't think anything replaces the face-to-face -face forever. I think uh, ChatGPT, AI, all these tools are great, and you can use them, and you could spend time, and you can commit talent on your team to handle some of these things, but nothing replaces the on-site, shaking hand, pressing the flesh, uh, taking people to breakfast or lunch or golf as you do. I think that that will never be replaced. I think people need a sense of community. They like to see people. And if you can bring a personality to it uh, as well, then they walk away from the conversation feeling better about their day. So yeah. I think that that will never change. I agree with you. Yeah. Well, we can all uh, learn something from you today. Is there anything else that you want to share with us that, that you're focused on or excited about over the next 24 months? <laughs> no, uh, actually, I, what has been good is to, to hire... Um, has been really, really tough. I mean, impossible. And people wanted the moon. Uh, I, I've seen that change over the last few months, and I'm excited. Uh, uh, we're you know planning on bringing on a few you know younger, aggressive people that with some experience, and that was hard to come by you know last three years. But I, I think that's changing, uh, and people you know want to make a long-term commitment more than they did. And um, you know, I'm excited about bringing on some younger blood and you know teach them and grow their businesses. I'll ask you uh, one last question just because we're talking about family business here uh, as well. So your father started the company 50 years ago. Uh, he's still in the business today. I'm sure he still has a desk and is still, you know, still doing deals. He's one of those guys that's going to do deals until the very end, right? No, unfortunately, he's not doing any more deals. He does have an office, but he, does, okay. so he doesn't come in very often now. And so what does the future for, for Q10 Lutz look like? Are your children going to get into the business? Do you have... Um, no, I, you know, I'm hoping to... to to cultivate some of the people that are there and some people I'm looking forward to bringing on and, and make it just a, a, you know, a group thing. I don't, I don't see my kids, uh, being in real estate. One wants to be in sports broadcasting. He's down, uh, learning that at the University of Miami, my daughter's in fashion in New York and my other son, uh, we'll have to see where he goes, but I'm sure it'll be something you never unique know. and exciting. <laughs> yeah. I don't see real estate in his future. I think I see bigger things, maybe like a sports agent or okay. he's a personality and a good one. Oh, very good. Yeah. He got it from his father, for <laughs> no, sure. He's way more charismatic than me. Is he? Yeah. Uh, I look forward to meeting him. You should yeah. bring him to, uh, to the program. Yeah, I should do that, yeah. Well, it's been an honor to sit with today. Adam Lutz, CEO, Managing Principal at Q10 and Lutz Real Estate Investments. And appreciate uh, the time today, Thank the you. conversation. It was insightful, learning your story, learning what's important to you, and uh, hopefully walking away with a few nuggets to help you better your business and your career. Thank you for joining us on the Power Connector podcast. I'm your host, Eric Dickow. We'll see you soon.